everyone, and welcome to Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy. I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. And on Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy, we take a trio of films, whether tied by thematic elements, numerical order, cast and crew. We go through each film and discuss the good, the bad, and the weird behind them. Ugh, got a big yawn. <laughs> I was trying to hide that, but can't do it really on the mic. But today, it is not a boring matter that yana is not no. indicative of what we're talking about today that is just October. it's just indicative of how hard we've been working <laughs> it's indicative of a month we've both been <laughs> excited for and also just ready to see hit us <laughs> yes yeah it's always looming around the corner until it's finally here mm-hmm. but before we get to a spooky trilogy mm-hmm. later this month we thought we would get into the trilogy we promised you all those weeks ago <laughs> that we've been taking our time to watch together Yes. And also find the time to do so, because in case you don't know, today's episode is the Once Upon a Time trilogy. Sergio mm-hmm. Leone's Once Upon a Time trilogy. Sergio Leone is mainly known for the Man with No Name trilogy. Right. The Spaghetti Western father who basically put Clint Eastwood on the map. Yeah. In that regard. Totally reinvented the Western genre. Yes. Yeah. I, I will say, because this is something that I think is also hilarious, is the term spaghetti Western. Yes. Where it's just a spaghetti Western because it's an Italian it's man. It's made in, yeah. It's made in Italy and it's an Italian man yeah. doing a Western. It's like almost racist. <laughs> there's like, <laughs> I know there's like other countries do the same because I know there's a... Shinjuki Western Django, which is a Japanese Western. I believe yeah. it's called a ramen Western. Right. Yes, I've was, heard that so term like, before. So, like, every country has their yeah, own version of, like... just take the local noodle yeah, and like, put it in front of... Insert local food option. Yeah. Western. Yes. <laughs> but today we are not talking about the Man With No Name trilogy. We are talking no. about... Hilariously enough, we did, I don't even think I was even realizing this when we when you suggested this to me. The last three films in Sergio mm-hmm. Leone's filmography before it says untimely passing in 1989. And those three films are 1968's Once Upon a Time in the West, 1971's Duck, You Sucker, <laughs> and 1984's Once Upon a Time in America. And if you're wondering uh, why one of those stands out awkwardly in titling, we will get to that. Yeah, or you might notice Fistful of Dynamite. Fistful because of Dynamite. For some one, reason, yeah. the term, the name Once Upon a Time in Mexico was too easy. <laughs> So they thought, let's not do that. Yeah. But, yeah, we are talking about a trilogy that is tied together by thematic elements. There's not much here that is like, you're not going to see characters. It's not a storyline. No. It's not like the Dollars trilogy where you're following uh, a hero through through all three. Um, You are basically seeing the father of Spaghetti Westerns pick points in time and just spend that time, you know, kind of like drowning himself into the era the kind of the thematic elements surrounding the change of an era in Mm -hmm. that time frame usually all three of these eras are kind of almost like the crux of a new generation's about to come after yeah i've I've heard this trilogy described as kind of leone looking at three different points of major uh social upheaval oh yeah in in the west or in in you know north america (laughs) Um, the the first one being, of course, kind of the death of the old west and the yes. move into the industrial age. Mm-hmm. Um, then a period of revolution in Mexico, and then of course um, the kind of prohibition era or the end of prohibition and the change of of the organized crime culture of urban America. Yeah. So, 
So we're yeah. going to be tackling in these three films. Again, this is also kind of a fascinating film about this trilogy is one, not all these films are westerns. Two, I mean, two two of these films, while they are westerns, you are going to see vastly different quality as well as vastly <laughs> different approaches to a western. Yes. From a western godfather, basically. Yeah. And three, the one that isn't a western is, oh my gosh, I can't wait out to talk about that because that is <laughs> it's also very interesting to see a man known for westerns. Yeah, just almost doing, exclusively. Yeah, because hilariously enough, for a man. For, like, this idea of, like, kind of, you know, making a filmmaker, an auteur, like, calling him an auteur and almost trying to, you know, so many people, especially, like, kino-posting type groups, will mm-hmm. treat directors like Leone like gods that have, like, these filmographies that can't be touched. Right. And then you look at him, and Leone didn't do ten films. Yeah. Which is not a bad thing whatsoever. No, no, no. It's just fascinating to think that the man that, how much he pioneered and how much he popularized the Western genre in under six films. Right. Because he right. has five Westerns under his belt. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is our first film today, which we'll talk about. And it's arguably, again, I am biased and also recency bias because <laughs> I haven't seen, I don't think I've, you've seen the Man with No Name trilogy mm-hmm. much more recently than I have. Yeah. And if I've seen any of these films all the way through, I don't remember. So I'm just going to say I've seen bits and pieces of each. Mm-hmm. But at least to me, starting off with Once Upon a Time in the West, this is probably in my top favorite Western films. Sure. I think, yeah, this I think is, it's a lot of people's because it's, kind of it's kind of an opus for the Western yes, genre. It is. Um, I mean... I won't get into it, but like I, I would personally pick the good, the bad, and the ugly over Once Upon a Time in the West. But they're both oh, great westerns, again, I, and they're both a, a a master of the genre at the top of his game. I, I, the first time I think I tried to watch Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, I was in high school, yeah. and I think I fell asleep. Sure, because I mean just, it's a it is, three it's hour a, movie. It's and, a slow burn type. Yeah, of, yeah. It's also yeah. Also, well, kind of all of Leone's movies are slow burns. Yes, um, yes. We, I think we. We remarked a few times while watching these three movies about how uh, the first hour of every Leone film is kind of a a trial. Yeah. And then you get into it and you're like, okay, I get it all and I'm I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm buying in now. There's, yeah, there's, there's very fascinating to watch directors that there are directors I can think of who are really good at getting a lot across in a very small amount of time. (laughs) <laughs> like I mean, honestly, the first thing that yeah. I think of, like at his best, I think of Zemeckis. I yeah, think of, sure. I think of Spielberg. I Soderberg. Think of Soderberg. Oh my God! Yeah. Talk about a man who works on a small budget yeah. and does an economical much, filmmaker. A very economical filmmaker. So to go to one of the reasons why this has taken so long as well is because to find time to watch all these films during our usual schedules, all three of these films are above two and a half hours. Yeah. And the shortest one is Duck You Sucker, which I think is at two hours and 35 minutes. Yeah, and the longest is four hours. Yeah, thankfully, about. we didn't watch the director's cut of Once Upon a Time in America. Add an they extra 30, 30 minutes. minutes. Which uh, we'll get to when we get to that. Yeah. But with Once Upon a Time in America, this is 2.45. And you are absolutely Once Upon right. a Time in the, in the West. You Thank mean. you. Yes. Thank you. God. <laughs> if that happens again, I apologize. But... I mean, we may we may start referring to them as West 
duck you sucker and america and, and robert de niro's very bad prohibition <laughs> uh but yeah with once upon, once upon a time in the west it is fascinating to see a film that takes an hour to develop a, a problem develop the yeah. story but really just linger on what the characters are doing before the plot really fully starts yeah it's setting an, an atmosphere mm-hmm. um it's kind of setting you in this sort of final age before the downfall of the old west yes and so it's kind of setting you in this this dusty forlorn hellscape mm-hmm. of western of the western united states to keep with the western vibe it is like watching someone light a piece of dynamite and that piece of dynamite has a very 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 long piece of string attached yeah. to it <laughs> long fuse yeah long fuse that arguably you know when it's going to blow when you watch once upon a time in the west pretty much all three of these films, you have an end and like an, a feeling of okay, I feel like I know this is when it's going to be climax time. Yeah, but it is like you also are just trying to enjoy the burn as it goes because if you don't, you are probably going to be bored out of your mind. Yeah, <laughs> and thankfully, I think that the weakest of the three, I think that does this is Duck You Sucker personally. Sure, yeah, but with this one, it's like By a long shot. I, I <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> But I think it's fascinating to see this film and say that and say that the first hour is slow, but not necessarily, in my opinion, say, like, it should be cut down. No. It, for me personally, I feel like that first hour, while it is the hardest hill to get over, it is a necessary hill. Because mm-hmm. once things start kicking off, you as an audience member know exactly what is the problem, who is the antagonist who are the protagonists are going after, why they're going after them, and how they're going to attack. At least yeah. the first the first time they're going to attack. You're right. Because basically the first hour is just you get introduced to Harmonica, played by just Charles Bronson. the chiseled leather couch turned into man, the late, great Charles Bronson. Yeah. Uh, you have – her name escapes me. Uh, Jill – I yeah. know is the character's name. Yes, you have Jill, who has just recently lost her entire family. Right. Uh, and is dealing with the loss of that. And then you have, who might be my new favorite scoundrel when I think of scoundrels, and that's Cheyenne, who, oh, are, yeah, these, or yeah. who are these trio of protagonists per se. They're kind of like, you know, juggling the, the protagonist's role to a degree, just... Yeah. Basically dealing with the the consequences of Peter Fonda's character who kills Jill's entire family. Yeah. Blames it on Cheyenne and it just so happens that Harmonica who is Charles Bronson does not like Peter Fonda's character. Yeah. And wants to kill him. So so it all kind of falls into place. Yeah, there's this kind of the the backdrop that uh, all the kind of character drama is operating on is like um uh harmonica's character when we first meet him rolls into town this kind of mysterious uh marauder much like um clint eastwood's nameless character in the dollars trilogy um and kind of finds himself in the middle of basically a uh, a train like a railroad company uh trying to carve their way through this region of the west yes uh meanwhile this jill woman who just lost her entire family actually like just moved to town 
only to find out that her yeah. husband and her children are dead. I think she just wanted to visit. I thought the yeah. whole thing was like she's working in Louisiana or she's working out of state. Yeah, well, she's yeah, she's money. like a prostitute in, in New Orleans, I think. Whatever a call girl is at that point, Andy. <laughs> prostitute. I think, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that to her. But, um, <laughs> yeah, she shows up. Her family is killed. Um, and yes. she's basically left with uh, this little ranch out in the countryside um but turns out her husband now dead had bought the land with the intent to turn it into like a rail station like yeah. a train a hub for mm-hmm. the railroad um a big part of that first hour is jill be- almost assuming or it's like being told that there was a lump sum of money a lot of money that her husband was saving up for something yeah and he never told her right. where it was she never finds it because he, like Andy said, spent it all on yeah. materials to turn their ranch right. into a little town. Yeah. Although, he went, I guess when he purchased the land, it was under some sort of, of uh, contract with kind of like a, uh, like a reverter clause in it. That if he doesn't build the station, doesn't build the town before the railroad gets to it, the land goes back to the railroad company. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile... Here comes the train and the railroad chugging along, building along, and uh, basically, she needs to she needs to build this town or she loses her home, um, and that's kind of when Harmonica shows up, who has his own seeming ap- apparent personal vendetta against yes, yes. Frank, who is Thank the you, hired Frank. gun for the rail rail P- company. Peter Fonda in a very Henry Fonda. Thank you. Good God. I said Peter yes. initially. It, sorry. It is You're Henry good. Fonda. See, in my brain, I was like, oh, it's Peter. Henry's the other <laughs> one. No. Sorry. Yeah. Henry Fonda. And in a very opposite type of role you'd expect to see him in. And yeah. He was also very aware of that. He was very apprehensive when he was asked to do this. Yeah. And then was pretty much pushed like, listen, it's Leone. You should do it. Well, and it's and, interesting, too, because the, the admiration kind of went the other way because leone after he did the dollars trilogy he was kind of done with the western genre he was yeah, like i gotta do other stuff he had already been working on an adaptation of the book the hoods which would eventually become once upon a time in america um but he was like ready to put the western genre to bed and move on uh but the studio i think it was maybe united artists um i think so I was think like they were like we just want you to keep making westerns. Yeah, um, it's the studio system. It's what you're good at. Don't don't change it. Yeah, and then uh, I bet he loved hearing that. <laughs> yeah, and he turned down like uh, westerns with uh, Charlton Heston, Kirk Douglas, Rock Hudson, um, but then they they presented him Henry Fonda, and Leone's favorite actor of all time was Henry Fonda. Fonda. So he was I'll, like, I mean, okay, fine. I'll do one more Western. And again, I mean, as somebody whose favorite film stars Henry Fonda in it, 12 Angry Men, yeah. like, understandably so, that man, when he has everything against him, he can act the hell out of a room, even if he's the minority in that room. Yeah. So to watch him in this be an antagonist and just, like, Henry Fonda's performance in this is the right amount of like a seasoned experienced actor chewing the scenery, but not to the point where you can notice he's chewing the scenery. Like he's playing a bad, he's playing a piece of shit 
yeah in this film he's, he's doing a great job yeah just a skis and he's so crusty and tan Ugh. and wrinkled and leathery Gosh. um yeah and then he's got those which like in say 12 angry men which is black and white you never get to see but in this you see his bright blue piercing blue eyes, eyes coming out of that bronze face and yeah he's kind of terrifying he in is this. i mean um, it's his first scene i mean it's almost again leone is just a master of his own craft because a lot of what's so great about this film and i think the high point to the other two films after this is like the simplicity of almost everything but it's not about you know, it's simple, therefore there's nothing to it. It's more about the execution of that simple introduction. Like, Frank's yeah. introduction is he kills a, he kills Jill's whole family. Yes. You see him do it, but the thing that really adds dimension to it that makes him so interesting is that when the youngest son survives and someone says, well, Frank, what do we do? And he looks over to him and he goes, well, now that he knows my name, I guess he can't live. Now, can he? And then he shoots the kid the fucking face. Yeah. You get across easily. Yeah, he's a bad guy. But the fact that it's like he doesn't even wince. Mm -hmm. It's like it's just the job. Yeah. And then that perfectly sets the foundation for when you see him interact with his uh, his client, who is this uh, uh, handicapped uh railroad ex he's the railroad mogul like yeah, i don't know if he's the owner or the the operator of the company but yeah. yeah he's he's a railroad mogul that is slowly getting more and more crippled as time goes on yeah to the point where he has this extensive <laughs> rail system that comes down from the top of his trail rail car so he can pull himself around yeah it's kind of like on crutches. like the the overhead bars in like a, a subway or yes, on a bus yes he like hoists himself around on these monkey bars something that has no does not feel like would ever had been an idea at that time period but <laughs> leone just sells it so well yeah and yeah it just every bit of this film is just the story is a two it's two hours and 45 minutes of three people being like well this town needs to be here because you want we want to make sure that you are set up also we hate this fucking guy yeah and one person is like well i hate this guy because i'm not gonna tell you and the other person's like well i hate this guy because he framed me for killing your family yeah. and i don't do that i don't kill kids <laughs> like that <laughs> yeah i'm just a scoundrel not that kind of scoundrel right and just ultimately lets the film just go like it's it's fascinating to watch this film and be like like you're two hours in and you're like i know exactly what's going on there's nothing complex about what is going on. It is just, if there is complexity, it is in the shot composition. It is in the action that is happening. Like, yeah. there's a whole scene where uh, later on, Harmonica gets captured. They get he gets captured, and so Cheyenne right. has to save him. And Cheyenne is basically having a shootout with a bunch of people in a rail car, while having to climb and walk around the rail car. <laughs> And what follows is just some real, just goofy, but also incredibly impressive, fun antics with yeah. a shootout in, in a small enclosed space. Something that always seems like is, you know, an action director's nightmare, having right. that small of a space, especially a moving space, too. Yeah. But ultimately, Leone knocks it out the park, and there's so many other scenes that are like that, but strangely enough... For a film about Western, like a Western with shootouts and whatnot, mm -hmm. 
it's a film that also keeps you invested mainly because of the drama because there's not a lot of shootouts in this. There right. are some. Yeah. And they're good, but there are few and far between. It's very much a quality over quantity with this film. Yeah, and there's no, like, I don't know. I, w- I want to say no massive set piece. No, the no. The biggest thing is probably that train sequence. Um, yeah. But that's even, you know, maybe a dozen people are involved. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, um, I mean, just say the the civil war battle sequence in the good the bad and the ugly which is hundreds of people firing at each other that Um, i've seen yes or or even in the next film in this trilogy which has uh several absurdly large set pieces this one is uh yeah surprisingly low key low low stakes is not entirely the right word but like very much more restrained in terms of the action spectacle yeah, like not it, in the style. Like, there's plenty of Leone style here, but like in terms mm-hmm. of just the scope of the the big sequences, it's it's less about that kind of spectacle of violence. Yeah, if you put all three of these films in front of somebody and someone watches all three of these films and you ask them, okay, which one do you think is the first in this trilogy, and you tell them, I'll give you context. This trilogy happens after Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I think most people would think Duck, You Sucker is first. Because Duck, You Sucker fe- feels like a film that is trying to top the good, the bad, and the ugly in aspects. Mm-hmm. For what yeah. I have remember seeing from Good and the Bad and the Ugly in terms yeah. of just the bombastic nature, just kind of amping up the action, amping up the the comedy. I mean, yeah. the ugly again, like you have you have a white guy pretending to be a Mexican. Yeah, like you have these wild characters, but they they fall, they pop out of the screen, and you would think that like. This is Leona being like, oh, shit, I got to They want me to do Good, the Bad, the Ugly again. I don't want to do a Good, the Bad, and the Ugly 2, so let's do something right. just to tat off and do it like that. That is not the case. <laughs> in reality, Once Upon a Time in the West feels like a man's love letter to a genre that shows that it's not because of the shootouts. It's not even because of the grizzled men that are dried up and clearly... <laughs> supposed to evoke men who don't even know what a shower is because it's not even really a thing back then (laughs) it is a film that shows a a director that kind of embraces the storytelling narrative elements about heroes such as a lone gunfighter or a scoundrel or a hitman the railroad mogul it's taking all the elements that at this point we have seen ad nauseum in other forms whether it's video games more recent films or just decades of films trying to kind of use these types of films as kind of a foundation for other genres. Mm -hmm. You were seeing a man that is basically going like, I'm going to make one of the best Westerns, if not the best Western I can ever make. Yeah. And that's the goal. Yeah. And so that's, yeah, like you said, like there is no big bombastic finale to this. The finale is genuinely what makes it so bombastic is it's the emotional charged element to the final standoff yeah it's like you have a man who is just desperate to either die for die for something or get the money he believes he so rightfully deserves in the land and then you have another man who you know has something to do with henry fonda's character but we have yet in the two and a half hours we've hung out with them (laughs) have heard fucking nothing about their relationship yeah and it's about to come out with this fight and to have this this random shootout outside of a town, outside of pretty much 
feeling like, well, everything's settled, right? And it's like, right. nope, you got this one thing. Yeah. <laughs> and it is, it, it just works so incredibly well. And it, I mean, just again, thank God this is a film that is nearly three hours long and it's not unbearable to watch. Yeah. It's far from it. And I really appreciated that. Well, and I think by this point, Leone had really, has really kind of nailed down exactly how to, um, steep you in in the atmosphere of the west oh my um, God. which is something he'd clearly been refining over the course of his previous trilogy and you know i think really nailed with uh with the good the bad and the ugly but here he's uh it's almost like he's he with his previous trilogy he was like okay let's make some kind of cheeky dark you know uh subversions of the western genre and now with this, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, let's kind of look back at the genre almost mournfully, almost yes. kind of sadly, and be be like, okay, this is kind of the end of it. This is all we can squeeze out of mm-hmm. it. Um, it. It feels like a film that should be in the same category as, like, The Shootist in terms of, like, the that your time is over, yeah, gunslinger. It's, it's the you're end done. Of, you're yeah. too old. But the yeah. thing that's different, dying though, is, West Corps. Yes, <laughs> but the difference though is like in a film like that, you have almost it seems like every other person that's not a gunslinger telling the gunslinger they're out of their time. Right. They're not right, young right, anymore. Right. They're gonna die in the street if they don't do something. And Once Upon a Time in the West, that is not the case. No. It's almost like all the gunslingers don't need to be told. They are very well aware they are in an era where they are slowly dying off well, and, and slowly irrelevant. Yeah, and to the point that that's exactly the thing that, like, the reason why they're all fighting each other. They're all, like, yeah. s- like scavengers. They're, like, fighting to survive mm-hmm. in a world that no longer has room for outlaws and gunslingers and bounty hunters. Yeah, Fonda is basically just, like, fighting for something he believes in his soul he's earned yeah. from years and years of being like a gunslinger that survives right like a, a merc that's made it through survived yeah ev- years and years of this he's like if if anybody is gonna survive the death of the west and stay out here for all eternity it's gonna be me <laughs> and so here's my stake in the mm-hmm. land and what a surprise that doesn't go that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't go, go his way doesn't go his way uh and that's why it's also fascinating when you look at the the protagonists, because you have three people that are all in the game and vastly for vastly different reasons, and also look upon life in vastly different re- ways. With the fact that, like, Harmonica, as a character, is the most mysterious, but that is because he is solely, slow, solely driven by revenge. Yeah, and we don't get like, to know yeah. what that revenge is until yes. the very end. And it's fascinating too to see that because again. Going years and years of seeing other kind of like neo western or other genres take from this, or you know, being playing video games like Red Dead and seeing yeah, those sure. elements come from this, basically seeing a character like this that is pretty much like, oh, so this is what Denzel Washington's character from the Magnificent Seven remake has inspiration from. Yeah, and to watch Bronson handle that revenge, that seething revenge with such iron forced subtlety <laughs> to the point where you really don't see an, an even an inkling of that vulnerability until the very end yeah when everything is said and done 
is fascinating and still just as captivating if he was just the opposite on the opposite end of the spectrum, like constantly talking about it. Right. Like, it just works so incredibly well. And with Jill, it's also like Jill has another element to it because she is <laughs> she's like the only woman in this film. Yeah. And she's smart. She's independent. She's pretty self-sufficient to a degree. Yeah. I mean, as much is, as you can be. Yeah. Being a lone person trying to build a town. Yeah. Be, yeah. Being a woman that is trying to build her own, but is you know constantly pushed into the role of your beautiful I want to fuck you, therefore yeah. you should be a prostitute or you should be my wife, which is like, yeah. basically, you know, the sad truth of Jill is like an era where she could thrive is unfortunately not here yet. Yeah. But thankfully, out of the three of these protagonists, who has the higher chance of surviving but Jill? Right. And I think that shows that hope of her kind of character. And then there's Cheyenne, you know, my boy. And yeah. Cheyenne is kind of the, he's almost like, He's almost just the sort of de facto representation of just outlaw life. Oh Cause, yeah, cause he's just he's just another outlaw who's kind of a rival to Frank and his crew. Mm-hmm. He gets framed by Frank for the murder of Jill's family. Yeah. Um. But he's yeah he's just trying to get by and get his peace and uh, and move on. Um. Uh, but he's kind of he gets wrapped up alongside harmonica and all this crap. Yeah. He basically, yeah, he is, he is what you would, I mean, in another Western, he's the bad guy. Yeah. Like he, he has that energy to him, but there is knowing Leone seeing how he does this. He's, he's much more gray in this. Right. Where it's like, yeah, when Frank kills her family, he's, he's outright just like, ah, I don't kill kids or women. (laughs) I don't try to do that. Men, I mean, that's just a part of the job. Like, it's like he just is super open about it, but also is very clearly like, yeah, is similar to Frank hitting a wall in terms of this lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And I think he finds almost some sort of semblance of a kind of responsibility he's never had before, being able to help get this woman, you know, the the chance she she deserves right. to like build a town and be the head of this town and you know make it make something that her family died for right but also he it's it's again it's that fight because on one hand he wants to be more noble but at the other point he just wants a piece of that ass <laughs> yeah. and he really is like he is the comedic relief out of the three of them i think all three of them have funny bits but it's yeah. cheyenne that really mm-hmm. i mean the man fucking puts his boot on his gun to make someone pretend to think that his feet are hanging out. Yeah. He just shoots a dude in the face. That's such a good bit. uh, But it's like, at that point, it's like, could anyone do that? Maybe. But no one could do it as well as Cheyenne. (laughs) Nobody did. (laughs) No one did it like Cheyenne. And ultimately, his his character goes into... Because I would say out of the three, he's probably... Hilariously enough, despite how mysterious Harmonica is, I always think of him as the least developed... Yeah, he, he I talks mean, the most, but he's not. He's just there to like almost reiterate everything that has gone. Yeah, he's just kind of an enigma. You're trying to figure out what his stake is yeah. in all this, why he's doing, mm-hmm. wh- why he's sticking his neck out for this woman and that sort of thing. Cheyenne is a little bit more. Uh, you kind of see his character arc laid out a little bit more, especially well, at, yeah, especially at the end. Yeah, like his his track. Oh my god, we gotta talk about the score. 
<laughs> All three of these films are done by the legendary composer, Ennio Morricone. Yeah. Who is known for, I think, all three of the Dollars trilogy, right? Yeah, pretty much all but, of Leone's movies. Yeah, but when you think of, I don't want to do it right now, I feel like I'm not going to do it justice, but the good, the bad, the ugly theme. Yeah. Just the, the noises. Right. Uh, just he is known for just some incredible scores across the board. Even the scores he never gets credit for ultimately have gone into circulation enough that are now getting credit post-mortem. Right. Report posthumously, and so it's like, God, the, the Once Upon a Time in the West score again shows similar to Leone's approach to this film, like it doesn't feel as flashy as no, it's the not as bombastic. No, it's a little more like it's, it's, haunting. Honestly, it's kinda. still playful though when it comes to certain themes. Like I think Cheyenne's theme is very yeah. playful. I think Harmonica has probably the most standard quote-unquote hero theme yeah and then jill's yeah it's a little bit more subdued um but ultimately but and and then you've got the thing i mean the motif that kind of repeats the most throughout the film is harmonica's harmonica yes. blair, which is yes. almost siren like it's this kind of <laughs> scary like just kind of kind of thing on his harmonica gosh when he again what's what's so great about leone's approach to the film is like you spend a whole hour being very well aware of what his harmonica sounds like yeah. and how he approaches situations. Like you, at a certain point you're like, I haven't seen harmonica yet in the scene. I feel like I know how he's going to pop in. And usually it's playing his harmonica. He yeah. does not hide the fact that his, that he is there sometimes. So like when yeah. an hour is in and you just have a scene where Jill is like doing her own thing in her house. And then you just hear his fucking harmonica, but you don't see him. Even though you know he's not the bad guy, there is still a bit of a hesitation of like, well, what the fuck? That's just that's just rude. That's scary. Why would you do that to her? Right. <laughs> and then he shows up later uh, when he introduces himself to Jill, which is, gosh, it's it's also fascinating with this film. It's like, is the protagonists have, it's not really a love triangle, but <laughs> it is just like, I, maybe it's a lust triangle. Yeah, kind of. More is. of anything because, They're yeah. They're both it's, into Jill. Yeah, well, Jill is yeah, Jill is super into harmonica. You find late in the game because, unsurprisingly, the one that speaks the less and is also the one that isn't tried to grab her ass at least once is probably the one she's into the most. And harmonica is not. I mean, he's he's aware of how attractive she is, but she's also a widow, yeah. and he's <laughs> he doesn't feel like he has anything to offer because <laughs> he's the gunslinger. He's a, he's a lone gunman. Why why would he yeah. feel like he does? And then Cheyenne's just horny. Yeah. Cheyenne's the horny of bastard. the three of them. He is a bastard, but he's a lovable bastard. Yeah. He's a scumbag. <laughs> he is a scumbag. He's a fun scumbag, though. Because, mm -hmm. again, it's it's played off incredibly well because the cast just, not even just Fonda, like the whole cast does a really good job, even if they're small parts. Yeah. Really selling those scenes well. Like Jill's family, God, their whole death scene is just like really incredibly well done. The father's, like, realization that, like, his daughter just got gunned down and there's really nothing he could do about yeah. it. Like, like, even if he survives this, you see in his face, he's like, even if I get out of this, she's dead. Yeah. Like, I lost a kid. I lost someone from this because of me. Like, they, they sell it so well. Even the fucking, even the crippled railroad mogul, like, he has his own scene to, like, to, to basically highlight what he brings to the table and spoiler alert, it's money. 
But like that whole scene is so well done where he practically just turns Frank's crew against him solely because he has oodles and oodles of money. Right. And it's just a really well, again, all these things you could just like tell someone what that scene is like in classic film fashion. Just because it's simple doesn't mean the execution doesn't give it a complexity. The camera angles, the the little subtle movements in the face and the performances, the the look of everything, my God, where it takes place in the film and the score and like, gosh, Leone is just killing it with this fucking film. Yeah. To the point where it's like, my God, really, not even ten films. That's surprising. <laughs> <laughs> then it, yeah, then it makes sense too that it's like if it was. There's an alternate reality where he probably has 20 films under his belt, and they're probably six out of ten westerns. Right. Because yeah. <laughs> he, he just doesn't want to do them. Yeah. Uh, it's also fascinating with this film. This film has, like, five writers. Yeah. For uh, a film that's so straightforward, you have so many writers involved. One yeah. of them including Dario Argento, the yes, man, of, the king uh, of Jalo himself. Yes, king of Jalo, Dario Argento. Helped write one of the most iconic westerns of all time. And damn, he I would I want to know what parts he had. I assume they all just kind of well, threw I, out ideas. Yeah, I mean, I think he was kind of more. His credit is uh, under story, story rather than screenplay. So uh, he might yeah. have just helped uh, Leone work That's some right, stuff yeah. out or something, <laughs> or, or get yeah, cause, pieces moving. Because I think yeah, cause isn't it? It's Leone and somebody else in screenwriter. Uh, yeah, Leone and Sergio Donati. Is he the one that goes on to be the like, the original director for Duck You Sucker, or is that somebody else? Oh, uh, maybe. Um, I don't know. We'll talk about that. I more think he wrote about. Duck You Sucker. Yes. Um, yeah. We'll we'll get to more of that with that one. But before that, is there anything else you want to talk about with Once Upon a Time? Because I mean, this movie, movie, great, great movie. Yeah, it is a great, great movie. western. Um, and it it would make perfect sense as an iconic all-time great filmmakers final stamp on the western genre but funnily enough it is not his final stamp it is not on the western genre because uh, our next film is his final stamp yes so the most fascinating part of duck you sucker in my opinion is pretty much the in-between of once upon a time in the west and when duck you sucker actually happened yes because Again, like we said, like Leone was not trying to do westerns anymore. Once upon <laughs> a time in the West happened because of United Artists as well as just ideas and just kind of slowly built with the idea of using Fonda and other characters and whatnot. Yeah. So when it came to Ducky Sucker, hilariously enough, that film went into development as Once Upon a Time in the West was still being shot. Yeah. And also, I believe the co-writer with Leone on Once Upon a Time in the West ended up being the initial choice for directing. Okay, yeah. Because I think Leone was like, I don't know if I really... This feels like your baby more than it does mine, and I'm not kind of interested in doing... I just did... I'm doing a Western right now. Why would I do this right, afterwards? Right. So you take this on. I think you'll do well with this. And then as that's going on, I do think it's a situation where it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Studio's like, no, Leone? Must have Leone. Right. And apparently not only was that, but so again, this is a lot of, this film has a lot of wild stories surrounding it. And whether it's true or not, I think a lot of the people that were involved are probably dead or very old at this point. Yeah. So I don't know if I can confirm or not, but I, there were rumors that at one point Rod Steger, who is in this film, uh, not a Latino man playing a Latino character. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was originally uh, rumored 
that Eli Wallach was the first choice oh, okay. for that character. Okay. But the studio wanted Rod Steger. Sure. The studio was like, we want Steger in this film. Steger won't do this film unless <laughs> Leone's involved. Yeah. And so you we you cannot be the director on this. So they go, okay. Leona would come in. Leona's like, okay, let me finish this fucking film that you told me I had to do first, and then I'll yeah. do this fucking film that I guess I have to do now. <laughs> and right. fo- I mean, I th- the major crux of why Leona ended up doing Ducky Sucker is because, hilariously enough, was not about the Mexican Revolution as a whole. It was more about, at the time, in the late 60s, it, like an Italian revolution that was yeah, happening among right. people, especially younger generations. And he found an idea of talking about kind of the cost or the price of a revolution among the people right. and using that as kind of the you know the the foreground to the background of a Mexican revolution bombastic action film yeah. that just so happened to have basically two fucking side characters from a western film you think Leone made 3 years ago <laughs> like it's it has like all these different elements that are clearly like there are fascinating elements to duck you sucker but as a final product, Duck You Sucker is by far the oddest of the three. Yeah. It is a, it's a... weird one. It, it works, I think, at its best when it's either bombastic action mm-hmm. or focusing on the revolutionary, what this can do to the people around you, the cost of it. Is it really worth the heartache, the body count? Yeah the the you know, the philosophy surrounding the revolution is it really going to last after this war you know just the usual like war is bad but in an actual good sense yeah and then on top of that you have an hour before all that kind of becomes more apparent <laughs> of just well, you have a you have a white man pretend to be a Latin <laughs> being again a, once a, again a bandito oh, yeah. you have I believe I've again he an American actor pretending to be an Irish terrorist. Yes, uh, you in also, a very clunky Irish accent. Yes, you also have. Uh, gosh, what else? The the bandito has at least like twelve family members. They yeah, all steal, they all work for him. They all work for him. Uh, there is thankfully it's not shown fully. It's it's barely shown, but there is a sexual assault in the first thirty fucking minutes of this film. Yeah, by it is implied. One of the main characters. It is implied. Thankfully, it is not seen, but still, it it's, may mean. It, yeah, yeah, it's, it's all but declared. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> but considering what we will get later, it is like, uh, yeah. well, okay. Yeah. It ultimately it is an hour of just like, oh, the first time I think out of these three films, you will go if you're going through film by film, going okay. Well, what the fuck this ends up... Where do we go from here? Yeah. And ultimately what happens is... This is a film that I think originally had a... Had a long cut, like a hard cut of four hours. It was a rough cut of four. Um, They brought it down to, I think, three. The studio wanted two. And Leone, I think, was like... I don't know how you can make it work without this... And right. so they got it to a middle ground of two and a half. <laughs> so that has led to a film that I think up until they get in, until our main characters, whose names escape me. <laughs> uh, they were fun names. I know that. I'm Their faces are etched into my brain. And also, <laughs> duck, you sucker. The fact that it was said out loud is, of course, etched in my brain. Said out loud multiple times. Yes. Um, but 
four. I think we counted four total times. Ducky's yeah, up here. four. Um, and the funny thing about that, and the the reason why Duck You Sucker, as clunky as that sounds, ended up being the title, is because, by all accounts, Leone was convinced that the phrase "Duck You Sucker." was like a classic american colloquialism that like anybody I'll give out that. in the west would have said i i had never heard the phrase duck you sucker until i heard about this movie um but he insisted that that's what it was called it, it was previously um uh kind of conceived to potentially be called once upon a time dot 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 the revolution uh continuing on his kind of once upon a time would not been thing. horrible it's it's clunky. It is clunky. Um, so is the, Ducky Sucker. The ellipses didn't need to be there. Yeah. I, again, once upon a time in Mexico would have just been fine. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I think I think upon release it got an alternate name, maybe in the U.S. A fistful of dynamite, which is kind of yeah. the other popular name you will see this called. I mean, uh, but the the official Italian name is yeah. uh, well, it's like Jules Testa, which basically means duck your head. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, when I bought this on Blu-ray for this trilogy, it literally says Duck You Sucker on the front <laughs> and a fistful of dynamite on the side. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's a film that clearly figure it out. really shows exactly what you're going to see in this film, which, again, I, I really like this film. It is chaos. And I think even though it is yet another like, well, this is clearly not a, <laughs> a real Mexican man playing a Mexican uh, yeah. bandito. Steger, I think, does as best as he can, especially, you know, knowing full well that in this role he is going to be constantly compared to to Wallach. Yeah. From Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And James Coburn, because um, that's the Irish. Uh, John. John. Yeah. yeah. He is. He does a really good job, despite the fact that his accent is uh, yeah. all over the place. I mean, and, honestly, I would say that what really carries this film, uh, you mentioned earlier the the spectacle and set pieces absolutely yeah but other than that probably just the chemistry of the two leads uh this is kind of a buddy movie the, um, yeah the first hour is just them fucking with each other yeah and it's... and like really aggressively too and yeah. then they kind of soften on each other over the film and to the point where they have this like weird trusting bond mm-hmm. uh that has been forged in the fires of revolution yeah um, it's 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 this weird thing of like the first hour after the after uh, Steger is introduced, and then Coburn shows up with his dynamite and goes duck you sucker. After that it is literally just back. It's like spy versus spy type shit. Yeah. For an hour, until yeah, John, John is like a, a obsessed with dynamite, so yes. he like just keeps blowing up. He was a, uh, he was a stuff. demolitions expert in the Irish Revolution. Yeah. And he just took his expertise to Mexico <laughs> and ultimately leads to the first hour being like, oh, you fuck with me, I'm going to fuck with you. Oh, you fuck with me, I'm going to fuck with you. Right. And it is, it is funny the first time. And then it was, I think the third or fourth time, it's like, okay. <laughs> it's still funny. I'm not going to say it's not, but I am yeah. curious as to where this is supposed to go. Right. Ultimately, what it leads to is apparently there is a deleted scene in this film that was taken out, but it was actually pretty well contextual. It should be. Is in the final product, there's a scene where John uh, blows up a tower, thinking 
that it is the Bandito and his kids are in it. Right, right. Because apparently in a deleted scene, uh, they they fuck each other long enough that John like runs out of water. Like I think they like they like get rid of his water. Like one of his kids dumps all of his water yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And so like he tries to find a like he finds a puddle that he's gonna pour the water out of, and then the kids piss in the puddle. <laughs> And so in the film, when he sees, like, what he believes is, like, the, the kids running around, he makes it a, takes it upon himself to try to lure them into a tower yeah. and blow, blow them up. up. But in, instead of that, he inadvertently blows up his – the Germans. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, a German force that hired him to blow shit up in the area, I think. Well, yeah. The, we – God. You and I were both when we were watching this film. We were like, "Why are there like German soldiers involved?" And, <laughs> yeah. and I had to do like I, like I had to look into it because I was like, oh, please I, explain I, I it don't to me. understand." Uh, they're meant to be the Federales, which is like the Mexican, you know, uh, federal what? kind of government force. Yeah, I didn't um, know. I did not. But, <laughs> but the the commanding officer of this unit of Federales is a German. I don't know why it's not explained. He doesn't have a character arc. Um, he's just no. menacing German. I, again, uh, I don't know been... if that's that was just to like maybe appeal to the American sensibility, where of course we hate Germans. Um, we'll root against him. Um, but the weird thing also is they changed his name, the character's name, from like a German-sounding name in the Italian version to like Reyes or something, which is like a Hispanic sounding name in, in the English. Yeah. I, it, okay. Good to, good to know because I was, because at a certain point at the finale of the film, they reference like, yeah, we got a buddy that's on there, like jokingly saying there's a buddy on that train and it's Reyes. Yeah. And it's like, how, you've seen him how many times? <laughs> like twice, three times? Like, yeah, you've there's seen. not like a relationship there. No, no, no. Like, and it, it's He's cl- just trying to kill you. Yeah, it's one of those situations where Duck You Sucker works well enough as a film, narratively, and then you realize when you look at all the stuff that was cut, it's like, oh, so that's why it feels a little odd around this point. Yeah. Because of this, because of that. There is a scene in this film where, like, everybody in a cave has been gunned down. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's like a bunch of, it's, it's a bunch of, you know, innocent people. That had no, nothing to do with the fight that just transpired prior. That's really fucking fun to watch. A lot of fun explosions in this film. <laughs> but there is... Apparently they shot, or at least they were going to shoot a scene where you watch the Federales gun them all down. Yeah. But they decided to cut the scene where they shoot them all down and you just see everyone laying on the ground. Yeah. Uh, so we both thought... John and Juan just come back just to the cave up, and just I'll, find them all Of course. Dead. Yes, it's Juan. I yeah. forgot that his name... Yeah, because yeah, 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 like John and Juan... But yeah, yeah, Juan finds out that like <laughs> his family fucking died. Yeah. And you don't even see it happen. Like initially I looked at Andy, I was like, Well, thank God they're all okay. Right. Yeah. And then I had to look up and I looked like, like, Oh, they're dead. They're dead. And you're like, What? And I was like, Yeah, they died off screen. <laughs> and it's like, why? Yeah, and so then there's this extended sequence of Juan just looking over these hundreds of bodies. Some of them yeah. are his children. Well, I will I will also say, because this does bring a lot of context to Ducky Sucker that we didn't bring up with West. But another thing about West is that you will see this again with Once Upon a Time in America. West was cut down severely mm. in its original theatrical release. And I think while still enjoyed, it also got a lot of critical flack for being pretty clunky. 
especially since in the original film, uh, the studio told them in the in in for West the original theatrical cut they told Leone that the film had to be in chronological order, <laughs> which you would think yeah saying that out loud you're probably thinking Logan that's how all films should be. Right. Well, then you watch Once Upon a Time in the West and you realize if you do everything in chronological order it is pretty fucking confusing. As yeah. well as like, wait, why did I see that at minute one when I'm not going to get a resolution? Yeah. Until like also, yeah, takes minute 150 out of it. Yeah. yeah, and so it's like, you know, people enjoyed Once Upon a Time in the West, but the reason it's considered one of the best films, you know, one of the best westerns of all time, especially one of the best films of the era, is later on getting like the European cut over to the states, as well as a more theatrical, more of a director's cut as well. Yeah. And Ducky Sucker, unsurprisingly has some of that same issues with cutting. Right. I believe the studio, another thing about Ducky Sucker that probably made it more stressful for Leone and company is that while they were shooting Ducky Sucker, West came out. Heard a lot of issues about the like the time, like how long it was, right. even though it was already cut down to, I believe, two. <laughs> so they cut like 45 minutes of the film. Yeah. And so like with Duck, they were like, well, we can't, it can't be too long. It can't be too long. We got we to gotta make it this, yeah. we got to make it that. And like... Ultimately, it's led to a film that is is incredibly fun to watch, but emotionally resonating. Not really. <laughs> not really. It's it's nah. it is it's not. It doesn't really. Uh, if there's a four hour cut of Duck You Sucker, uh, I'd hesitate. I don't want it. But I'm curious to <laughs> see what that would be. If that's really what like one of the original cuts were. Yeah. Because uh, like as as it stands now, if you're not going to add upon like more aspects to what's going on. I'd argue you should just make the film under two hours and cut that first hour, yeah. a good chunk of that first hour. Because at the grand scheme of things, a lot of the emotional aspects at the back half of Ducky Sucker is, well, I mean, I think is deserved to a degree. And I appreciate is in the film, but at the same time, it is a little a little smidge of too little too late. It's tacked on for sure. Because yeah. like, the entirety of John's emotional thrust oh. in the film James Coburn's character is portrayed through slow-mo uh, flashbacks. If the studio... Most of which are way too long and convey way too little and are super campy and <laughs> the, tacky and the... it's just James Coburn macking on a girl while his best friend watches. That's all the last one, though. I well, will... Th th that's <laughs> like, there's like three flashbacks like that. I know, but the last one is... The last one's is the, the most one, egregious. Yeah, it's yeah. the one that you're thinking of because we both are like, holy fuck. It just keeps going. How did the studio let him do this? Yeah. Because again... It, it doesn't add anything. It tells a story, but yeah, it, it's not. it doesn't tell you anything you already didn't know. Right, yeah. Like, it's funny to think that like for a film that takes so much time out of its revolution story to give you more quote-unquote context on, yeah. jo on john in his part like participation in the irish revolution as well as you know his friend and what happened to his best friend that turned against him during the revolution yeah they never they never talk or really give any insight as to what killed his love no yeah <laughs> like the love of his life that he's macking on with his best friend uh, she yeah. just ends up not showing up during the revolutionary yeah. scene, so clearly she's dead. It also just like, but why the fuck is she dead? What yeah. happened? It also just like never comes up in the modern storyline, like the, no, the western storyline in there, Mexico. There might be a instance where he like alludes alludes to it, yeah. to it and it's like Juan's not gonna fucking know what he's talking about. So it's for the audience to be like, right. oh, that's what he's talking yeah. about. 
But yeah, ultimately it is. Ultimately, your what you get is John's character arc of sorts being, uh, well, the the Irish Revolution went really badly, so he came to Mexico to try and get the revolution right. Yeah, he became a merc, and then ultimately yeah. found a revolution he could help with. Right, and, and so then he tries to convince this kind of you know schlubby bandit to <laughs> take up arms in this revolution and he yeah, does i i do think yeah the high point of this one really gets a kind of a character arc in yeah. that he actually becomes a, a warrior for revolution yeah uh he on accident by accident which is, which is also yeah. great yeah, yeah the high point of this film is definitely like an hour and a half two in where yeah. it's basically like when you finally get introduced to the revolution the bank that juan really wants to break into all that kind of stuff ultimately i think culminates into the bridge fight which is also yeah fucking phenomenal and then leads into another 30 minutes of okay i think i know where we're going but like <laughs> why is that where we're going okay we're gonna yeah. keep going all right this will be fine this will be fine whatever whatever like <laughs> it is it again looking like when i was writing my review for it i was like i look back on it fondly when I think about the film, like how much fun it was, but I also, it's hard not to think about the film and when we watched it, and think about the times of silence between both of us as we <laughs> sit on that chair, being like, "I, f- do you know where this is gonna yeah. go? Because like, I feel like I do, but also I feel like I know nothing." <laughs> yeah. And then the ending happens, and the ending <laughs> is shocking. <laughs> it just, it is just as bombastic as the be- like again. A high point of this film, I think this makes it worth watching, is the action sequences. I yeah. think it's definitely there's there's so much great blocking, there's so much great landscape, there's so much great practical effects too that are yeah. just like my Tons god. Miniatures and massive oh, explosions. This is this is classic Hollywood movie shit that I fucking love. Or classic yeah. like, you know, using using matte paintings and toys to fucking <laughs> convey shit. It's so good. But yeah. Ultimately, when when Duck You Sucker ends, it is the idea of, well, this is definitely not his best Western, and it shouldn't really be his last, but you know what? It was a fun time. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, it's it a is, romp. It is a romp. It's, 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 it's a Sergio Leone romp. That should really be on the, that should have been on the poster. Yeah. Which, like, if, if Leone had never, you know, if I didn't know better, if Leone had never opened his mouth and talked about why he wanted to make this film and assert the the themes that he wanted to to convey with it i would have assumed that this was just him for one final time just wanting to cut loose and play with the sandbox of the western genre just for fun because this really feels more just like a rootin tootin gun shootin blow em up western yeah. with revolutionary themes tacked on to it yeah you you would think once upon like you would think the deal with united artists ends up being like all right i'll make you a bombastic western but let me make once upon a time in the west when in reality right it was more like okay i'll make this one for you okay i wasn't going to do that one my like my <laughs> friend was going to do it but i guess if you want me to do it i'll fucking do it i have an angle i could work with it and it's hilarious to see two vastly different approaches to that yeah. like okay fine i'll do it fine, myself i'll do it and again, Leone is a great director, and I think shows in Duck You Sucker that there are a lot of elements here that I don't think would have worked as well if he hadn't done it. <laughs> but ultimately, yeah, in its final state, unless there's some random fucking print that, you know, 
maybe Alamo Drafthouse has the luck of finding <laughs> the future or some other random studio. Like, until there's like maybe like a extended edition that comes out that maybe explores things more, and I hear people talk about how much better it is. As it stands now, the the current cut is, I think, really good, but worth a watch. Yeah, like that's it. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I don't regret buying it, but I will always look at it and be like, ah, yes, duck you sucker. <laughs> just, just another one, just another Leone romp. Yeah. Uh, and hey, I mean, again, it is, it is, it also it is a bit of a palate cleanser for after West, and also makes me excited that we got at least a bunch of fun, goofy shit in between films because our next film. Right. is something else entirely. Like, this is, for a man that is known for Westerns, for a man that is literally in his filmography, only has three films under his belt that are technically not Westerns. Yeah. And one of those he was didn't finish. He was kicked out of, right? Well, he wasn't even the... He was only, like, second unit director Yeah, he was on second that unit, that's right. Yeah, I think he only has two films that he was actually the the you know primary director for and that was uh like a greek um you know uh ancient greece film uh, yes. the colossus of rhodes mm-hmm. and then our final film once upon a time in america yes his first and only gangster film as well as his last film in his filmography once upon a time in america is incredibly fascinating because thankfully this is not the type of genre change where it's like, I'm going to do something I've always wanted to do, and then it falls completely on his face. No, 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 no. Once Upon a Time in America, in my opinion, is great. Mm-hmm. I think it's a phenomenal way to end a career that is on his terms and is he's willing to you know, go out on in terms of just like, I wanted to do this. I did it. Here it is. Yeah. But also, ultimately, it is a very fascinating film because in terms of a gangster film, when you think of popular American gangster films, because this is a joint project with Italy and America, correct? Yeah, this was a yeah. Italian production as well as an American production. And compared to what you would think of, you know, Coppola's efforts with the Godfather films, which Leone apparently at one point could have done the Godfather and he turned it down. Yeah. And I think Once Upon a Time in America was him lamenting the fact that he turned down the Godfather. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but also, yeah, it's the fact that like you compare him to Coppola, you compare, you know, the later efforts of Scorsese in the in the gangster genre right. subgenre. You have a film that fits in as well as doesn't at all, <laughs> and it is fascinating to kind of see a a a genre filmmaker who wasn't entirely trying to be a genre filmmaker. He's just good at making westerns. Yeah dip his toe into something else and just really make a fascinating film about uh, the gangster lifestyle during the Prohibition era. And not in a way, I think is the most fascinating aspect of it, that feels that romanticized or glorified. Yeah, no, I think it's more in line with his westerns, more of a, a deconstruction of the romanticization of that lifestyle because yeah. what, um, what it means to be a gangster what people think a gangsters like and what they see in the yeah, lifestyle the things and they live through and mm-hmm. yeah ultimately what they become yes and 
gosh, where do we start with this one? There's just it's well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a lot. It's there's a lot to this film. I mean, the story we watched the shortest version. <laughs> right. Well, it, yeah, the version that was available to us. Yeah, um, I'm glad because, geez. Yeah. Um, I mean, the story with this film starts back in the mid '60s. I mean, since like right around the time of the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, mm-hmm. Leone had become interested in adapting this book the hoods by harry gray yeah yes um, who was yes. a former gangster um and you can't buy this anywhere i don't book? even uh, yeah i don't even think it's on audible oh wow i think because i looked it up on amazon out of curiosity if there's like a cheap paperback and it doesn't understand it. no huh. I, I think it just sends me to once upon a time in america right and just says based off of this it's right, like i right. know but where's the thing that it's based off of? yeah where's the book i mean the hoods like the book itself doesn't even have a, a wikipedia article no the author does harry gray does yeah. but um apparently i think de niro tried to talk to a lot of living gangsters that yeah. the film was based off the book was based off of and they all declined yeah <laughs> Like, it's um, like, yeah, I, I guess that's the kind of energy we're getting from this. Yeah, but, like, Leone had been sitting with this idea for a long time and was kind of fighting the studios because they only wanted him to make westerns. And, mm-hmm. you know, then ultimately after uh, Duck You Sucker took 13 years off from directing movies. Yeah, uh, I don't know if pre- I... Presumably <laughs> kind of just tinkering away at this thing. Yeah, I think trying to get it to happen. I think he probably dabbled in a few other projects in the writing, yeah, maybe producing aspect. Yeah. But yeah, it's mainly directorial wise. In case I didn't say in the beginning, Once Upon a Time in the West is 1968. Uh, Duck, you sucker! Also, The Fistful of Dynamite uh, is 1971. Mm-hmm. And like Andy said, Once Upon a Time in America is 1984. <laughs> it's a big old gap, huge gap, especially considering how like how short his filmography is yeah it's also a fascinating year for this to come out of because this is the same year as like like this is the year of like i think ghostbusters and fucking beverly hills cop and like huge blockbusters in the summer and then you have this film which like sobering meditation on the the, which was gangster era which was supposed to be two films broken into three parts Oh, okay. Or three hours, I think three oh, hours each. Three hours each, yeah. And then ultimately the studio said that is too much. That's too bold. Yeah, you're gonna have to cut this down to at least, I think three hours. And he's like, best I can do is four. <laughs> Take it or and leave it. He said, it. God damn it, no, it needs to be this. Yeah. And Once Upon a Time in America is following. <laughs> God, what is his name again? Noodles. Noodles. Yeah. There we go. Robert De Niro in his biggest gangster name yet noodles right as a prohibition gangster that comes back to new york city in the 60s late 60s and f- because someone is basically almost teasing him about his time as a gangster yeah back in the 30s when pretty much his whole crew got murked and he was pretty much on the chopping block he like left town and that was back 30 years later. And as he comes back 30 years later, he is now reminiscing about his time in New York yeah. during the 20s and the 30s. Yeah. And now we have a three-hour and 45-minute film that follows <laughs> his life in the 20s and his life in the 30s, sprinkled in with De Niro in probably the best makeup 
Yeah. I like truly phenomenal old age makeup in for De Niro because he just it just looks like how he looks now. Yeah. Or at least when he looks like a meet the parents era De Niro. Yeah, like two like thousands. Kind of, yeah. 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 Uh, gosh. Just and the one thing that's kind of fascinating about Once Upon a Time in America now compared to one scene in nineteen eighty four is now we have we have another director who has at this time done a gangster film that feels like a swan song to the gangster subgenre that is very reminiscent to Once Upon a Time in America and that is the Irishman. Oh, right, right. Um, but what's fascinating about that is that that film also, you know, that film has the meta narrative of the fact that it's Scorsese realizing that he, at a certain point, will never be able to do these films ever again uh, yeah, yeah. with his friends because they're all dying. old and they're dying <laughs> and, like, they're getting older and he doesn't, he can't contemplate, you know, you know, mort- his mortality and death. And so he puts that into The Irishman. Well, as was Once Upon a Time in America, it feels like a film. Where, I mean, again, Leone didn't pass away until 89, and that was through a heart attack. Yeah. So it wasn't like he died of cancer, where it's like he knew ahead of time. I feel like yeah, it was it was kind of a surprise to everybody around him to a degree. <laughs> and, again, there was a lot of time between this film and his passing. So clearly this is not a film that is about him talking about, you know, oh, my gosh, I won't be able to do this again. It, right, it feels more right. just like him probably contemplating, well, this may be the last time I want to do this. <laughs> yeah. That I want to do a film and I want to do a film this different. And so he tackles the gangster lifestyle so soberingly that I don't think either one of us was really anticipating that. And then we realized, oh, that's right. This is the guy that did Once Upon a Time in the West, the good, the bad, the ugly. Like even, yeah. even the parts of Duck You Sucker, like literally spends more than an hour, maybe a good <laughs> 90 minutes of total runtime of this film just you know engrossing him grossing the audience into the 20s the 30s the lavish lifestyle but not in the way that you think is like oh you should be a part of this like no. unfortunately a lot of scorsese films can you know awkwardly fall under because when you show that excess yeah a lot of people are going to take the wrong aspects of it sometimes right, right. i don't think you can really do that with once upon a time in america no there's not really like a f- fun no part to this um, no i i think there's there's not really a portion where you feel like oh yeah this would be so cool to be a part of yeah the the one that i think of because there's the in the 20s aspect the 20s flashback when they're all kids yeah there's the part where they're all laughing because a cop is having sex with a minor and they have a picture of it right and it's like just thinking about how that is funny to them in the depression era yeah. and they're like haha we now have proof yeah that you're a predator yeah now you're gonna follow and listen to everything we do and let right. us help us be aspiring gangsters and it's okay, like okay now it's my turn yeah and the then and then yeah, and then they have the teen prostitute yeah then they have sex with the teen prostitute yeah. and it is just like okay yeah it's, this i guess this is what this film is gonna be yeah and it's not in a way where it's like well i'm uncomfortable not yet there is a specific scene there. But it's very, very uncomfortable. But at that point, it is interesting to think of, like, at this point in, like, Goodfellas, it's like you, you're you at a point where it's like, well, I understand they're not trying to sh- say that this is a cool lifestyle, but this looks pretty fucking cool. Right. At this point in Once Upon a Time America, it's just like, well, 
this is this is really posh this is cool to a degree but it's not like man i wish i was there <laughs> yeah i mean with, it's, it's, with it's like a time a, capsule with a scorsese gangster film or a scorsese really anything um it's all about that kind of meteoric rise and then you know yeah. cataclysmic fall yes uh, from the the indulgence of the excess whereas this is kind of from the beginning just watching the cycles of violence that lead people into these lives mm-hmm. and the the kind of the way the world kind of moves on without them yeah um or the fact that they just they can murk somebody and push them off a cliff or push them into the river and they'll never be referenced again yeah, and just being like, "Oh, cool! They don't have to worry about that ever coming back." But at the same time, they're like, "Hmm, that could be us one day." Right. Yeah. And it's just enough of that where it's like it doesn't take away from any agency or whatever's going on on screen. It's just something to think about. It's like, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of sad and weird and kind of fucked up when you think of it <laughs> like that. And then it's like that's kind of the film. Hilariously enough, the falling of the the group themselves, the boys, turned in turn, the men. Yeah. At this point, which is Robert De Niro, James Woods, uh, I think William Forsyth is one of them. I think he's the one with the, yeah. um, the messed up eye. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Is it limp? I can't even remember what the. Because uh, again, unfortunately, I will say if there's anything to, to cut against the film is that there are, there are five boys a part of the crew in the yeah. 1920s aspect, and there are four men in the 30s aspect. Two of the four of those men, they have names. Uh, they're just not that important. Patsy and is the one with the, the shorter one. Yeah, and then there's Cockeye. Is Cockeye the weird is the and weird that one. Is William Forsyth. Yeah, yeah. So and Patsy, sadly, it's it's kind of wild to watch this film and not feel like there's much of a connection to Patsy because unfortunately the actor died of a drug overdose. I think before the film even came oh, out. Wow. So his, I mean, both those actors do a really good job with the little they're given, but they're given very little. Yeah. And at a certain point too, there are other characters that get introduced. And they seem to have more agency and more to do than the two men that are technically been a part of this crew for decades. Yeah. And so ultimately, it is a film where it focuses mainly on the agency between James Woods and Robert De Niro. De Niro being Noodles and James Woods' character. Max. Max. And both actors fucking kill it in this film. Let's get that out of the way. De Niro is a class act as an actor and is a is a phenomenal you know ten pole actor for a reason the man just has a subtlety to this role that like i mean again shows how good he is it doesn't feel like anything he does for scorsese no he hasn't it's like he hasn't quite developed the his his type that he becomes known for the like you know real squinty eyed chip on his shoulder type Um, he's a lot more because this is i think five plus years after godfather part two but about five uh, or yeah. six years before goodfellas yeah so yeah. he's 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 already worked with scorsese on stuff like taxi driver raging bull there will be other films that work with scorsese between right. this and goodfellas but he but hasn't it's... done i mean i guess he's in mean streets but like he, he's yes. not like mm-hmm. he doesn't he, he hasn't played that archetypal de niro gangster yet yeah and he doesn't hear either no and and here it's like here is a protagonist that feels like is constantly realizing that time is moving so fast 
that he'll never be able to catch up with everything he's lost, as well as, you know, realizing that at a certain point they are obsolete, which fits in to the other two films thematically, yeah. just realizing that at a certain point, the, the era of bootlegging and getting, you know, having speakeasies because alcohol is illegal, you know, nothing's ever going to change that. Well, we know historically <laughs> that did change. Right. And so it's having that idea of realizing that that's going to change. How do they handle it? And it's fascinating to see the fall of this crew not be the excess coming down on them, but it's really the fear that the excess is going to come down on them. So they're trying to take precautions and try to make it easier on them to make sure that when they do fall, it's not going to be as catastrophic as what you think would happen yeah. in a gangster film. When Arguably, it backfires when that choice is made. But it is, again, there is... A lot to this film, a lot we could spoil, and I, I'm trying to think of what what could be spoiled in terms of like. I, I mean, the, there's there's kind of a something I didn't really expect this film to do was kind of the big, uh, you know, third act identity reveal type oh. thing. Um, no, I I agree with that which too. Which I we can leave unspoilt for those who have not seen yes. this film. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you you alluded to it with at the beginning of the film in the uh, kind of 1960s plot line where Noodles is an old man and he's returned to New York City after a long time away. Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah, he's he's being teased or kind of summoned by someone that he can't figure out. Um, yeah, because and, and you know he he has no idea uh, who could have these kinds of connections because his whole crew died you know 30 years ago mm-hmm. um and so it's it's him trying to find the truth uh, of that but also like when the truth finally confronts him in the end he like doesn't even know what to do with it he's yeah. just kind of like uh, uh okay. yeah okay because at the same time too <laughs> it's like he is interested in the truth but he also is arguably in certain situations more interested in being gunned down more interested in having like basically being shot for what like basically atone for his crimes yeah atone for what he's done in the past because in reality the 30 years between the prohibition era kind of flashbacks and the modern day it's like he's done nothing yeah it's clear that like yeah he has had a lot of time to lament and recollect himself and realize just kind of what piece of shit he was at that time and it's also a yeah you see through the 20s aspect of like his home life which is it's non-existent his parents <laughs> do exist but you never ever ever in a nearly four hour film see his fucking parents right which i think speaks volumes to how he is as an adult how he grows up and how clearly he has no idea about certain aspects of life that yeah. probably could have been helped if he had parents that were there or could have been there and then at, at a certain point, yeah, the 60s aspect, ha- again, has that Irishman angle of, like, you know, the third act is just, rec- like, recollecting yourself and being like, all right, whatever's next, yeah, doesn't matter what it is, I just have to face it. Yeah. And De Niro, again, for a man that at that point was, I think, pushing 40, wasn't in his 60s. <laughs> <laughs> he was He was actually at that point 
a younger man and yeah. pretending to be in his 60s, yeah. even though for our generation he's always looked like that. He's always been an old guy. Yeah, because you know, how young we are. But like to see him be able to play that so effectively, even at that age, again, shows how great of an actor he is, but just shows how good the, the writing is mm-hmm. and the direction. And just the fact that like there are so many moments in this film where I think I had this, and I bet you did too, where it's like you're just watching you're going, fuck. This is Sergio Leone. Like I, you forget for yeah, a little bit. It's kind of because nutty because his his kind of classic bag of tricks that's all tied to the atmosphere of the old west is not on display here. I mean, no. his his skill as a filmmaker, absolutely, um, but it doesn't look or sound anything like his other stuff. No, it, it's you know, I mean, not that his other movies aren't slow at times, but like oh, it's really. Yeah patient and quiet and I would, sad i don't know if this is this is probably not really that much of a hot take with this but i would argue that once upon time america has the fastest first hour <laughs> yeah. in terms of just yeah. like there is there's again so much to chronicle in a like yeah, honestly, 40 year span well in that, the first hour might be the fastest hour of the movie mm-hmm. um just because yeah it's kind of jumping between different points in time and it and... also opens up to the fall yeah it opens to the fall of the boys yeah and making you think like because it it opens up to the fall and it's a gruesome fucking fall yeah <laughs> it makes you go what the fuck happened right and then it cuts to 30 years later and then you're like okay well what the fuck happened yeah and then i think a good 30 minutes in is when they go like and now we're in the 20s. And right. It's like, oh, yeah. now we're finally here. Oh, yeah. And then the 20s is like, yeah, the set design, the look, every, every, I mean, it's all clearly shot on film because it's the right, era. And right. Why wouldn't they be? But like the. <laughs> you the, mean Leone wasn't shooting on digital in 1984? You, you, he seems like the type of director that would love the idea of digital. Oh, probably. Being like, this is so much cheaper. Yeah. I don't have to pay for audio on set <laughs> and I don't have to pay for film. Yeah. This is fucking rad. Yeah. But no, I mean, like, even though it's like they're not doing super huge changes between each. Uh, you know, decades or each kind of era, there are subtle changes to the set design and the look and the lighting to make it seem like even if you're not aware, like they ha- they don't say out loud what time frame it is. If it's like a shot with no characters in it, you can tell it's the 20s. Yeah. You can tell it's the 30s. You can tell it's the 60s. Like it does a really good job of visually conveying what you need to know before it either outright tells you or just like keeps moving. Because the film does at some points just keeps fucking moving. Right. It's also a film that has fucking Burt Young. It has Polly in it. <laughs> it has Joe Pesci for a single, if not so, second scene. He has two scene. scenes. He has second, yeah. two scenes. Both brief. And it's funny to think that, like, he, I think De Niro said, hey, I think my friend Pesci would be good in this role. And Leone's like, no, I thank you, but we have someone else in mind. You can have whatever role you'd like. Yeah. And Pesci picks that role that he has in the film and Frankie I think Frankie or something like that but like he picked that role little did he know that a lot of the scenes he had were cut cut, by the end in the cutting room floor yeah well, that's what happens when you make a nine-hour movie. You oh, yeah. have to cut it down. Yeah, because I think it was. Like, I think <laughs> if I remember reading cor- correctly, all the rough footage before they cut it down to like I think in like six or five hours, it was ten hours. Yeah. 10 hours of footage they had to go through 
I bet the studio shit a fucking brick. <laughs> the amount of that's so much. And ultimately, thankfully, even though the original theatrical cut for this film in America, unsurprisingly, was botched. Yeah. They decided instead of using the European cut, which they were using at festivals <laughs> at the time, they decided to cut an hour from the film. An hour that was very much needed for a film like this that yeah. is really taking its time and you know developing things. It's a uh, Once Upon a Time in America was a film that had pretty lukewarm, disappointing reception until years later when the fucking <laughs> three hour and forty five minute cut was released, and then people were like, "Oh, this is one of the greatest, it's one of the right, greatest gangster right. crime films of all time." And I think they're right. I agree with that. I, I don't know. Again, I, I, I am a fan of Scorsese, so of course I sure. will always. My heart will always go to Goodfellas, a <laughs> gangster film. But what I like about Once Upon a Time in America is it shows, you know, me, Andy, and anyone who watches it who this you know constantly thinks of Scorsese and his films of like you know, the the pitfalls of excess, regardless yeah. of what genre it uses. You have a film like Once Upon a Time in America that really does handle it in the most sobering, realistic way possible. While also still being creative and flashy without taking away from its messages. Yeah. And ultimately has a finale to a trilogy that I think is one to be proud of. Yeah. As well as one that I think by the time America ends, it is pretty much like, well, I think there's not much else you can say about the matter. Yeah. In terms of the idea of like, you know, the the paragons or the icons of that era slowly fading away and, you know, evolving right. times and... The changes of you know revolutions or the evolution of technology or the evolution of like society it's is very fascinating to see leone take like the late 1800s the 1910s to 20s with ducky sucker and then yeah. just take the 30s onto the early 70s mm-hmm. to really just paint pictures for all three that feel unique and you know distinct enough but not in the sense that you can't tell that Leone's signature is in the corner of the painting. Like you definitely, right, right. you definitely, it's you see him on it, and even with America, you get that Morricone score that, well, I think is the most subdued of the three films. Definitely, yeah, it's still there. It still works incredibly well. It's actually instead, you get a needle drop that I think is <laughs> probably this might be. A very, I don't know if I could really say this fully because I haven't heard all the Beatles needle drops in the world. <laughs> this might be one of the best uses of a Beatles needle yeah. drop in terms of using it for the narrative and the thematic elements. Yeah. Uh, using when it also like is kind of tied into the score a little bit. It is, yeah. It like feels like a part of the DNA of the film and not mm-hmm. just like a, yeah, here's your pop hit. Yeah. Hey, hey, at least you can say one thing about noodles. At least he likes British rock. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Yeah. After all his years, he'd listen to the Beatles and not go, Ugh. <laughs> 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 Fucking Beatles. <laughs> yeah. But no, yeah, Once Upon a Time America is great. It is, uh, I, one of the things I told Andy when we went into the film is like, if we leave this film and I feel like I would watch the four plus hour cut, I feel like it's done a good job. Yeah. And I would say it has done a good job because I, I will watch that four hour cut at some point in the future <laughs> when it is on Blu-ray. Cause I want to give myself 
just an arbitrary amount of time to not have to watch a four yeah, plus hour film. Yeah. But also, I want to see this film in crisp, high definition where I can see everyone's wig piece. Right. In All the seams. Uh, it was funny, too, because, like, again, the makeup in this film is phenomenal. Yeah. Even for the people that are clearly nowhere near the age they're supposed to portray, they do a phenomenal job in the makeup. Except for one specific shot where they have a head-on shot of De Niro. <laughs> and I, you, you, this, this is going to happen regardless with old films. But the high-definition version we watched of this film, the fucking wig piece is so glaring. Yeah. It was comical. Yeah. His skin was such a different shade <laughs> to the wig piece that it was like, well... There's only so much you can do about that. Right. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, video games that were designed for CRT TVs, <laughs> yeah. and then you get them on your flat screen. You're like, wow, this looks uh, wrong. So what you're saying is every version of Once Upon a Time in America should have a CRT filter. Yeah. They <laughs> should have like a tube TV filter. Right, yeah. Or like an old-timey, like shitty video filter. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's Once Upon a Time in America. That's the Once Upon a Time trilogy. Yeah, all three overall good films. Definitely, one is weaker than the other two, but I think with this trilogy, it's it's a worthwhile experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, you know it's interesting because, like, I think even I mean, I don't, I couldn't find any direct you know comments from him about it, but the way everyone writes about it is as though um, it was Leone's intent to make this a thematic trilogy from the outset. but it's I, I kept wondering why, despite two of these three being so such iconic films, why I couldn't find more um, more literature about the trilogy as like a whole as yeah, a concept. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's I, th- I think it's probably just because there's not um, I mean, there are there's obviously a thematic tie in the way that he's using different points in American or well North American history to to talk about changes and you know social upheaval and that sort of thing but it's it's looser than you might expect the thematic tie especially when you throw duck you sucker into the mix because that one is just not operating at the same level as these other two in terms of its thematic core and what it's actually Mm -hmm. trying to say um the first and last of this trilogy really feel like you know, looking back critically at a certain era and mm-hmm. uh, also the genre itself and kind of, you know, taking apart the, the romanticized view. And then the middle one feels like uh, it's a Western romp and also revolution. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the core for Ducky Sucker is there. It's just you have to blow up at least three bridges to get to that <laughs> core. Right. And then by the time you get to that core, you're like, this is cool, but why wasn't this just on the other side of the... Never mind. It's yeah. fine. Whatever. Yeah. It is... Yeah. It, I would not be surprised. Yeah, because this is definitely not a trilogy that was planned like this from the get-go, but it clearly... It would not surprise me that after he had to find a way to get interested in Ducky Sucker, and have his yeah. own take on it, that when he finally does Once Upon a Time, Time in America, he's probably like, oh, shit. A good foundation on how I could approach this project is think about how I approach the other two. Right. But instead of it being in the West or in Mexico, dealing with revolutions or dealing with, you know, the age of the gunslinger going away. Yeah. It's talking about the age of the gangster, you yeah. know, falling into the background. And I think it works. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. I highly recommend this trilogy. Yeah. I mean, it's a good way to, I mean, especially if you've seen, 
any of Leone's other movies, any of the, the yeah. Clint Eastwood movies or something. Um, a good way to really kind of get a bearing on a iconic filmmaker is to watch these three movies because uh, you get him him doing very different things for similar to to achieve similar ideas Mm -hmm. um and it spans you know from the middle all the way to the end of his career yeah it's it's a kind of his peak to 15 15 years from you know beginning to end yeah this trilogy and it he does not falter genuinely like honestly with ducky sucker i think the thing that makes the film falter the most is the fact that they are they're they are contractually obligated i think at certain points of the studio to cut shit (laughs) and also the fact that they just had so much shit because apparently another thing with ducky sucker i think we might have talked about this you know back in the dark ages when we did our suspiria like my mother's mother's trilogy but when it comes to italian films in case you don't know is a lot of the times they will not shoot location audio Right, because it is easier to just get everything on set without having to worry about how hard the wind's blowing or is that something barking in the background. Nine times out of ten, they are doing that so they can prep for another scene somewhere else right. and just get out of the way. Apparently, one of the earliest you know hurdles they had for Ducky Sucker is that Rod Steger just really wanted location audio. Yeah, and that just like freaked out, <laughs> just freaked out Leonix. He's like. I, I mean, I could do it, but why? Why would you want to yeah. do that? This is going to be so hard. It's going to be so much harder for me. I, also, I didn't want to do this anyway. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's 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 a trilogy that I feel like, I mean, there are aspects to these trilogies that ha- have aged like milk. Sure. Absolutely. Especially in the f- last two films because there's a little... Both films have... A sexual assault. A little sexual assault that is not... not, not no bueno. No. Not good. And the first film has there's a, there are a few conversations in the first film where it's like, well, you can't get away with that, but that is pretty fucking sexist and <laughs> skeezy. But you're also a scoundrel, so I'll let you say it, Cheyenne. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, but I also think ultimately, and when on a thematic level, narrative level, and also just on a filmmaking level, these films just age well. I think they've just aged well enough that they're just going to keep aging well and. For they for these three being Leone's final films, I think this ends on a on like a really strong note for him and could lead people to see you know nine times out of ten when you think of a director in his final film or their final film you you don't think it's going to be as good as something like Once Upon a Time in America because yeah. you know maybe these things shift or this happens or they took a leap and it didn't work and so they have to go back to doing something they don't really want to do yeah or they're just like too old to do what they used to do yeah but thankfully this is not the case because Sergio Leone ends incredibly strong with the Once Upon a Time trilogy and yeah I'm glad we got to do it I'm glad we finally got to convince me to do it it's not (laughs) it was never because I didn't want to do these it was absolutely because of the time it was a big yeah big commitment (laughs) big commitment I will lie because why would I lie to our audience there were times (laughs) why'd you laugh at that why did you laugh at that? That's We've not... been saying we record live for three years, and Logan. we record live. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, just want to make sure everybody heard that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that. I don't like how he said that. I don't like that at all. But no, I'm. I I definitely even with Once Upon a Time in the West, it was rough. Like to stay out. Like so I was. I dozed off 
Yeah. Just so like for like a second, and it was like, fuck. Yeah, drink your and, coffee before you watch any of yeah, these. Yeah, or watch this during the day. Yeah. I, I think it did not help that I watched Once Upon a Time in the West. I think when I started watching it, it was 10 p.m. Yeah, oh, God, <laughs> yeah. Because, like, I had, I had a, I, like, I worked, I came back, my roommates wanted to watch a shitty movie. We watched a fun, shitty movie. <laughs> then I was, was like, it? well, it was Samurai Cop. Oh, okay. Highly recommend. Dog shit. Such a good time. <laughs> so many great lines. That's the one, the katana means Japanese sword. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. There's also, it has, it's basically the shittiest lethal weapon ripoff anyone could think <laughs> right. of as well as just like the the pitfalls of low budget filmmaking as well as people not knowing what the fuck to do yeah and some of the worst wigs i've ever seen <laughs> and like wig play it's great but no yeah we watched that and then by the time i watched once upon a time in the west i think i'd already told you we were gonna watch ducky sucker like the next day right. so i was like i gotta do I this gotta power through i gotta it. power through it and i'm glad i did because honestly once those films start kicking they kick in their blast and just remember, we film live or we record live. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, now that we've talked about, you know, westerns, revolutions, and you know, once upon a time in America with gangsters, we just we just realized at this point when we're doing this episode, it's Halloween time. Yeah, it's October. October. It's Spooktober. <laughs> and uh, like we Oddtober. Uh, Oddtober. <laughs> <laughs> But since we said, I think, the last episode, or maybe the, just multiple episodes prior, like this October specifically, because a certain someone on this podcast has, uh, a, little, has, a, little, has a little wedding at the end uh, of this yes. month. I mean, we're both. I'm also there, but he's getting, <laughs> he's getting, he's yeah. getting married <laughs> since yes. he's got something else to worry about. Uh, we're only focusing on one episode this month, mm-hmm. and an easy one. In my opinion, I, I suggested a trilogy that is not three hours per film. If these films were three hours per film, I would fucking lose it. Thankfully, oh, these films at most are a little under two. But uh, in honor of Halloween, and we've done so many different trilogies. Last year, we did the uh, David Gordon Green Halloween trilogy. Yeah, We've done Exorcist in the past. I thought it would be what better way to kind of just you know, make something easier as well as maybe do something a little bit more modern than tackle the very first VHS trilogy. Yeah. Uh, in case you don't know, VHS is a 2012 film that is a horror anthology, which is basically a bunch of directors do their own found footage horror film. Right. And they compile them together. And the, as of this recording, there are six of these films. Yeah. Three of them are only on Shutter, which we will, I think, at some point, I will definitely <laughs> watch, and we'll probably do sometime in the future, unless you hate these fucking films. <laughs> I have no idea. But, uh, yeah, we're going to be tackling 2012's VHS, 2013's VHS 2, and 2014's VHS Viral. viral. Yeah, not three. Uh, definitely, the, I will tell you now, Andy, that is definitely the worst of these ah, three. Okay. Just so I think I've aware. only seen the first one. I, I enjoy the and first I, two yeah, a I lot. Yeah, I had a good time with it. Because the, the first two, hilariously enough, because this will be fun to talk about on our episode, a lot of the directors that... Uh, worked on these first two films i think have gone on to do other stuff yeah other directors and i mean one of the one of the shorts is done the first film is done by radio silence right who ultimately end up two of the three of those guys end up doing ready or not as well as scream five and six Mm -hmm. so we're gonna be talking about that the fact that these films are 10 years old (laughs) yeah the first two are and you know just discussing just something just something we felt like you know after talking about long ass films that we both we yeah. both love but at the same time they are long yeah. it's not something that's spooky 
easy to digest and also very silly in some aspects. Yeah. Well, and we're also, you know, it's kind of going the opposite direction because it's, it's almost like a, we're watching a collection of short films um, in contrast to a trilogy of hugely long ones. Yeah. No, absolutely. If that's the way you want to uh, digest these films, like as you watch sure. through, just watch a watch a shorter day. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that, maybe I'll make some some days longer. Yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, uh, tune in on the twenty first, twenty eighth. Is it not twenty eighth? It's your wedding, isn't it? Yeah. I thought we were doing the 21st. Isn't oh, it? we can do the 21st. <laughs> I, I would personally, I know this might seem a little I mean, biased for me. I don't know. If I, I guess when you put in perspective <laughs> that we record live, it'll be hard to record <laughs> on my wedding day. I don't. So, yeah, you're right. I, I'm going to reiterate. I don't like how you said that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tune in on the 21st when we talk about the VHS trilogy. And as always, I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.